Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks to uh, the Thomistic Institute for inviting me to this retreat to talk about such a beautiful topic. Uh, Easter week's really the perfect time to think about deification um, because it's only through the crucified and risen Christ that we can become deified, that we can become like God by being united to God through grace. So that gift, the gift of deification, is maybe Christianity's most radical and amazing promise. Um, this, this highest gift of God, to be like him, so that we can see him as he is in heaven. It's actually the whole purpose of our creation. Um, in the very first paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, I'm going to quote, God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. So that, that quote is on the back of your handout. So I'm going to, uh, throughout the talk, um, a few of these quotes are going to be on the back if you want to meditate on them a little bit more. The church teaches here that to share in God's own blessed life by becoming somehow like God is the very purpose of our existence. And yet this teaching that God creates us in order to deify us is not very well known. Um, nowadays, even by many Christians. So to start us off, I'm going to begin with an introduction to deification and some of its scriptural and historical background. Um, in other words, what is the basis on which Christianity can make such a surprising claim that humans can actually become like God? Then I'm going to go into more depth on Thomas Aquinas' understanding of deification. He's my main guy. Uh, how it relates um, us to Christ and to God's own inner life of love and joy. Um, and what it might mean for us to live a deified life uh, right now here on earth. And then I'm going to finish up with some thoughts on what the promise of deification lets us look forward to, which is perfect union with God in heaven, um, where scripture promises in the first letter of John, we shall be like him we shall see him as he is. Okay, so it's only in the last 20 years or so that scholars have really begun to recognize the historical importance of the idea of deification in the West. Um, by West, I don't mean California, of course, right? I mean the Latin branch of Christian tradition, um, including Roman Catholicism. So that's as opposed to the Eastern churches like the Greek or Russian Orthodox. It's still often assumed that deification is only an Eastern Christian concept. And certainly it is very central in the Eastern view of salvation. But the idea that God makes us holy by deifying us is not only an Eastern one. It's always been a strand woven into the thought of Western Christianity as well, from the time of the early church. Um, and that's because it's revealed in Scripture. And recent scholarship has shown how significant 
it is for some major Western theologians like Augustine and uh, Aquinas, Bonaventure, um, and also some Protestants like John Wesley. So in the sixth century, the Alexandrian um, theologian Dionysius gave a classic definition of deification, uh, which is on, on your handout, what he called in Greek theosis. And he said, theosis is the attaining of likeness to God and union with him so far as is possible. So theologians like Dionysius draw ideas about deification from scripture, like the first letter of John um, 3, 2, that I already quoted. Uh, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Another important text for the tradition is the second letter of Peter 1.4. That says, God has bestowed on us the precious and very great promises, so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature after escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. So the basic notion of deification, being made like God by God, being given a share somehow in the divine nature, it, it includes a cluster of other ideas that are all found in scripture. Some of these other concepts that are related to deification are, for instance, perfection of the soul made to the divine image, being conformed to Christ and imitating Christ, Divine adoption, so becoming the sons and daughters of God um, through Christ in the Holy Spirit, um, being, uh, receiving a kind of divine illumination from the divine light, um, and of course being united with God. So one, one classic way of understanding deification is that it's the effect of what's uh, traditionally called the wonderful exchange, the wonderful exchange of the incarnation. That is, in the words of St. Athanasius, that God became man so that man could become God. St. Augustine talks about that um, too, but he talks about it in terms of our adoption by grace. So he says, for your sakes, the one who was the son of God became the son of man in order that you who were the sons of men might be turned into sons and daughters of God. You were sons of men, and you have become sons and daughters of God. He has shared with us our ills, and he is going to give us his goods. So an exchange. Now, because St. Thomas had access to the writings of early Western theologians like Augustine, as well as translations of some works from the Greek, so he, he really integrated um, thought from all parts of the Christian tradition. So he was able to integrate ideas about deification from both the East and the West into his understanding of um, sanctification. Okay, but just to pause before we get to um, Aquinas, I think you can see the idea of the wonderful exchange um, expressed in this Greek icon of the transfiguration that um, is on your handout. So as, as you may know, um, the Eastern tradition thinks of icons as being kind of like windows into heaven. So they reveal divine mysteries, and they teach us something about divine mysteries. So I, I'm sure you're familiar with the account of the transfiguration in Scripture, right? Jesus takes his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain of Mount Tabor, and um, he appears before them radiant with divine glory, right? So, so Thomas says that, 
you know, ordinarily, of course, he was, he was full of divine glory, but he hid that from us um, in his earthly life. But now he's letting the disciples see his glory. And he's speaking with Moses and Elijah, right, who represent the law and the prophets. And Peter, James, and John, you can see on the handout, they're just overcome with awe, right? They're, they're lying on the ground um, with awe. And see those rays that are coming out, those blue lines coming out from Jesus there? That, that blue round thing around him is called a mandorla. It's, it's a rare thing to see so much blue in an icon, and it means divinity. Okay, so his, his divinity is shining out of his body, and it, the rays are sort of going out into his, into his disciples. So uh, his nature as God is revealed here um, through his humanity. And at the same time, Jesus is showing them um, what is going to be promised to them because of the passion that he's about to undergo. Um, because he's going to undergo this suffering, they are going to be redeemed and, and filled with grace, filled with divine light, and one day reach the life of glory uh, with him in heaven. So, so uh, these, these sort of rays of light are indications of this um, grace that um, is, is going to be pouring from him um, into them. So this icon gives us a kind of visual teaching on deification. Uh, so scripture and theology, um, formal theology, aren't the only sources of Christian teaching on deification. In fact, one of the most significant sources is uh, really the liturgy and, and the, the prayers of the liturgy. But I'm going to say more about that next time. For now, though, we can already see that the Christian tradition understands that deification takes place through Christ and by his grace. So you could say that deification is also Christification, right? Being made like Christ. Now, at the same time, to be made like God also means to be made somehow like the Trinity, because the one God, of course, is a Trinity of persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the whole Trinity deifies us through Christ and by the grace of his sacraments. That's what it means, right? When you're baptized, you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? All three persons deify you. So St. Thomas's theology of deification emphasizes both how deification conforms us to Christ and to the Holy Trinity, as we'll see in a minute. Before I go into the details of Thomas's view, though, I want to identify a basic element that has to be in place in any genuinely Christian understanding of deification, um, to explain like how we can really become like God without falling into the error of thinking that we actually become God, okay, which is impossible. And I think Father Andrew is going to be talking about some ways of misunderstanding this next time. Um, so any truly Christian doctrine of deification has to be based on an accurate understanding of how the world is related to God as its cause. This means it's necessary to account for how God is simultaneously transcendent and also imminent to the created order. So what do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, we have to maintain that God is really transcendent. God is completely distinct and above the created world, above his creation, God is infinite in every perfection. He's completely other than 
anything than the created world. So God's not contained within the world in any way or dependent on the world or identical with the world. Uh, so there has to be this absolute distinction and difference between God and creatures so that no creature could ever cross the boundary and become God. At the same time, though, because of God's complete transcendence, a Christian doctrine of deification has to explain then how it's even possible at all to become like God in any way. And even as Thomas thinks, why is it most fitting and appropriate that, that we become like God? Okay, so how can we know this God who's so far beyond us and, and so, uh, you know, other than us? Well, Thomas explains that while God is absolutely distinct from the world, he's also the source and creator of the world. And so the world has to reflect and reveal God's perfection somehow. So his truth, his goodness, his beauty, um, because he made it all. And so just like a work of art reflects in a way and points back to the artist, um, the transcendent God must somehow also be uh, imminent to the world, deeply involved in the world, causing the world, working within it, but not merging with it in any way. So, so creatures, especially rational creatures like us and, and the angels, um, we still have our own individual existence and freedom, even though God is always present and acting as the cause of our existence and everything that we do. God's behind it all. So the way St. Thomas understands God's simultaneous transcendence on the one hand and his imminence in creation on the other, that gives him a solid philosophical foundation for his teaching on deification by grace. So basically, Thomas wants to explain that uh, even though creatures are absolutely distinct from God, they're also like God because every perfection that they have, um, beginning with their very existence, is a limited participation or sharing in God's unlimited existence and perfection. So maybe you've heard this before in a, another TI talk. This is an important concept for Thomas. That is, Thomas says, God is infinite existence itself. God is the unlimited act of being. In scripture, perhaps you've heard in the book of Exodus, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Do you remember? He tells Moses his name. I am who am. I am the one who is. Right? That's God's name somehow mysteriously. Well, Thomas builds on that to say that's what God is. God is existence itself by nature. Creatures have existence. They have existence by sharing in God's infinite existence. So God is existence itself. Creatures have existence. God is goodness itself. Creatures have goodness by sharing in God's infinite goodness in some limited way according to what kind of creatures they are. So a creature can never be existence itself or goodness itself like God is, but is completely dependent on God 
for that participation or sharing in God's perfections. Okay, so what this means, and I think actually this is kind of mind-blowing, really, um, is that since everything participates in God's existence and perfections, that means that at the heart and source of every created thing, from electrons to angels, Thomas says God is always present most intimately. God is intimately present in everything. When, when you look around you, Thomas says, powering their existence at every moment and upholding their every action. So everything in some way shares in divine perfection. Um, it shares somehow in goodness, truth, and beauty. Everything reflects God. So I think, I think that's a beautiful idea, right? It's, it's, a, it's something to really contemplate. Um, it, it's profoundly beautiful, and it gives us a glimpse into Thomas's sort of contemplative vision of the whole universe as a visible revelation of God's goodness. Everything tells us that God is good because we see everything coming forth from God and returning to God so that we see in everything God's infinite wisdom and love at work. And that God is always deeply present and acting all the time at every moment if we just have the eyes of faith to see it. So even just on the level of nature, Thomas thinks that human persons participate in the divine perfections more than any other creature on earth because they're made to the divine image. So our creation to the divine image is revealed in the book of Genesis, of course, right? Um, and theologians have understood it in many different ways. But Thomas follows the uh, Augustinian tradition that only we, human beings, like the angels, are made to the divine image because we reflect in the very structure of our minds the trinity of divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all creatures are like God in some way. Um, even just by existing, like rocks. Um, some are more like God by being alive, like plants and animals. But humans are like God in their rational nature. And I'm sure many of you have, have heard about this before and maybe studied this, right? Only we of all creatures on earth have an intellect and a will, like God. And so only we, with the angels, are made to the divine image, of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's unpack that a little bit, right? Thomas explains that we image the Father because the Father is the principle or the source of the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? He's the source of the Trinity. And we, too, are a principle of our own rational action through our intellect and will. Our intellect, which is our power to know the truth, images the sun, because the sun is the eternal word of truth in the divine intellect. And our will, which is our power to love the good, images the Holy Spirit, who is the love, the eternal love of God in the divine will. So in our intellect and will, we image the Son and the Spirit. Okay, so now so far, I've only been talking about how we're made to the image of God by nature. So every human being without exception 
is made to the divine image by a participation in God's powers of intellect and will that make them like the Trinitarian persons. And by the way, this is, I think this is kind of important. That's the deepest reason why all people are equal. Because all, without exception, right, from conception until natural death, are made to the divine image. So this means that every person, every human person, has the potential for union with God because they're rational, they're capable of knowing and loving, and only a rational creature can be united by knowledge and love to God. But this potential cannot be fulfilled until God gives that person the gift of grace. So that, that's important. God gives every person by nature the potential to be more like him and to be united to him. Um, in the language of the Latin tradition, he makes us all capax dei. Capax dei, right? Capable of God. But we can't make that happen by ourselves, right? Not only is there the huge obstacle of our fallen nature, right, and our, our personal sin, but only God can make us like God um, and unite us to him. So without God's grace, we can know and love things in this world with our intellect and will, but we can't know and love God himself, and we certainly can't get to eternal union with him in heaven. So that potential can't actually be realized without God's gift of grace. And we have to keep that gift by cooperating um, with it to the, to the end of our life. Okay, but when God does give a person the gift of sanctifying grace, which is what happens in baptism, he raises them up to an even greater likeness of the Trinity. So Thomas, Thomas draws from 2 Peter 1.4, um, to divine sanctifying grace, this is on your handout, as the gift of a new higher participation in the divine nature. So it's this new participation in the divine nature that deifies us. In the gift of grace, Thomas says, we receive what he calls the divine missions in our soul. Mission, the word mission means sending, right? So in the gift of grace, the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit into our souls in a new and more personal way so that now our intellect and will are made even more like the divine persons. So our powers of intellect and will are actually made more like the Son and the Spirit. Um, now, one of my all-time favorite quotes from the Summa, you should all have a favorite quote from the Summa. Uh, mine is on the handout. <laughs> um, so one of my all-time favorite quotes from the Summa, Thomas explains that the mission of the Son makes our intellect uh, more like the Son, the Word of God, breathing forth love, the Word who is wisdom itself. And the mission of the Holy Spirit makes our will more like the Holy Spirit, who is divine love itself. So, uh, Thomas, uh, I, I put the, the whole quote on the back of your handout here. Thomas describes it um, this way. The soul is made like God by grace. So for a divine person to be sent to anyone by grace, there must be a likening of the soul to the divine person who is sent by some gift of grace. Because the Holy Ghost or Spirit is love, the soul is assimilated to the Holy Ghost by the gift of charity. Hence, the mission of the Holy Ghost is according to the mode of charity. Whereas the Son is the word, not any sort of word, 
but one who breathes forth love. So Augustine says the word we speak of is knowledge with love. So the Son is sent not in accordance with every and any kind of intellectual perfection, but according to the intellectual illumination which breaks forth into the affection of love. As is said, everyone that is heard from the Father and is learned comes to me, and in my meditation a fire shall flame forth. So Augustine plainly says the Son is sent whenever he is known and perceived by anyone. Now perception implies a certain experimental or experiential knowledge, and this is properly called wisdom, as it were a sweet knowledge, according to Sirach, the wisdom of doctrine is according to her name. So because of this new likeness to the divine persons, not only can we know and love things in the world, but now we can know and love God. We can share in a little of God's own perfect knowledge and love of himself. So we get the beginning of a glimpse into God's own mind and heart, into God's own inner life of wisdom and, and, and love. Okay, so what is God's inner life like? Uh, well, we can never really fully comprehend that, of course, but God does graciously will to let us share just a little bit in that life by grace, and uh, even more so in the glory of heaven. So the Trinitarian persons live eternally, the tradition understands, in a kind of mutual communion with each other. Um, sometimes it's called perichoresis, right? That's a Greek word that means a circular dance. It's like the, the, the persons are dancing around in this infinite circle of perfect knowledge and perfect love and joy in each other. And as a result of these divine missions or sendings of the Son and Spirit into our souls, now that communion of the divine persons lives in us in a new and, and deeper way. You could, you could even say maybe you know, they come and dance around in us. That dance of the Trinity is taking place in our souls so that we can actually share in some of God's own knowledge um, and love and joy, even in this life. Um, so, I mean, if thinking about how everything in the world um, has God's presence working in it, right? If that's mind-blowing, um, the thought of the Trinity personally living and loving in your soul um, is even more so, um, really worth um, thinking about. So, by grace, Thomas says, God himself becomes the object of our knowledge and love so that we can possess and enjoy him. Just like uh, Father Jonah was talking about, right? When you know somebody, it's like they're inside you. God dwells in us like the known in the knower and the beloved in the lover, Thomas says. Um, not only, so God living in us now, not only as our cause, but as our friend. So when God comes to live in us like that, um, he does change us, but he doesn't in any way merge with us or replace us or turn us into puppets, right? That's, that's important here where uh, we need to remember God's transcendence, right? Because God always remains transcendent. He never competes with his creation in any way. Um, when God comes into our souls, he doesn't sort of crowd us out and you know, take up spiritual space. Um, it's really more accurate to say that when God comes to dwell in us by grace, really, it's more true that we enter into him. We're really sort of diving deeper into a larger kind of existence, a fuller kind of existence in God, 
uh, a bigger share in his infinite goodness and existence. So deification doesn't make us any less human. It really makes us more human because we're, we're made to the divine image in the first place, and now we're becoming more what God gave us the potential to be um, and, and, and beginning the, the life that's going to end up with us living in him forever. So, as I said, though, when God comes to live in us, um, he does change us. And it, it kind of has to be that way when you think about it, right? Our powers uh, naturally are not capable of reaching what's supernatural, um, especially since we've been damaged by sin. Um, so uh, in order for us to love and know realities beyond the grasp of our own nature, um, God really does have to bring about a sort of radical change in us, right down to the roots of our being. Um, he even calls it a new creation. Uh, Thomas calls it a new creation. So God has to heal and, and, and elevate us so that we can um, receive uh, his gifts um, and come to know and love him um, in a little bit in the way that he knows and loves himself. So, so Thomas teaches that the effect of those divine missions is to infuse or put into us um, a whole new set of created gifts that make us able to um, receive God. So um, I'm sure you've heard of the infused virtues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So those are the gifts that come um, with the gift of sanctifying grace. So this new um, elevated nature that grace gives us um, also gives us new powers, and new powers to, um, to do the supernatural um, activity of knowing and loving God. So the mission of the sun, remember that makes our intellect more like the sun, and the sun is divine wisdom. So the mission of the sun puts into our intellect all the gifts of divine wisdom, beginning with faith that allow us, make us able to know and believe in God. And the mission of the Holy Spirit that makes our will more like uh, the Holy Spirit, who is God's love, infuses into our will the gift of the theological virtue of charity. So when you have charity, it's, it means that your will is sharing and being made like the Holy Spirit. Um, so in the gift of grace, through the missions, we're not only made more perfectly like the Son and the Holy Spirit in our intellect and will, but as a result, we receive all of those theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and um, it's those virtues that allow us to know and love God. So now our own uh, powers of knowing and loving begin to image God's own perfect wisdom and love. And so we, we truly become, in deification, um, uh, more perfect images um, of God. Okay, so up to now I've focused on uh, what deification is from the point of view of how it's divinely caused in us and, and changes us. But in the rest of my talk, I want to think about what deification does. So if grace and the theological virtues give us this new nature with new powers for a supernatural activity, how does that play out in our actual life? So like, what does a deified life look like? Well, the first thing to say is that a deified life makes us look and act like Christ. So drawing from um, St. Paul, especially in the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, Thomas uh, teaches that deification by grace, he says, conforms us to the image of Christ by giving us a share 
in Christ's own sonship. So that is grace makes us children of God and brothers and sisters of Christ um, who share in the same relationship that Christ himself has with God in his human nature. So in, in the incarnation, Christ, right, the word made flesh, who's both human and divine, uh, he is the father's most precious gift to the human race because it's only through him that grace and charity can be poured out into our hearts. So that's that idea of the wonderful exchange that I mentioned earlier, right? God became man um, so that man could become God. So by grace, um, we're made, when we, we're made sons and daughters of God, we actually share in Christ's own relationship with the Father. Because Christ is the, he's the only mediator, the one mediator between God and the human race, all grace comes through Christ as kind of a sharing in his own perfect overflowing um, fullness of grace that he has in his own human soul. So maybe you remember in the Gospel of John, in the prologue to John, that most beautiful part of, of the Gospel, it says, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So, so Thomas teaches that in his human soul, Christ himself is perfectly deified in his human soul. And so he most perfectly images the Trinity in his intellect and will. Um, and because his human nature is sort of directly united to the divine nature, right? It's plugged right into the divine nature because um, it's united directly to the divine person of the word. His, human, his uh, human nature is sort of filled to overflowing with the perfection of grace. And so much so that he can communicate grace to others, right? Thomas gives the example of something that's on fire being able to set other things on fire, right? So Christ is completely on fire with God. And so he can, he's the one who can pass on um, grace to others. Um, so he has all, Christ has the perfection of charity, wisdom, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, they all are in fullness in him. Um, and so because all grace comes through him, all grace makes us like him. All grace makes us Christ-like and gives us a share in his own fellowship with the Father. And so that means that now, with grace, we share in his inheritance and in his destiny, right? To, to be with the Father and to see the Father's face in glory. So uh, Thomas very often describes the deified life in terms of a kind of journey, like a lifelong growth in likeness to Christ, um, in which we're moving towards this perfect <coughs> happiness of beatitude in the glory of heaven. Now, of course, this doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, not an easy journey, right? We're going to have to struggle against sin. And we're going to have to experience the suffering that comes just with being in this world um, and with the, the consequences of sin, like death, right? Just as Christ voluntarily um, did um, on our behalf. But on this journey, um, in addition to the, the grace and the theological virtues, um, God also gives us the help of the Holy Spirit um, to keep us moving along a little more easily. And uh, as the Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Romans 8, um, 14 through 7, the children of God 
are led by the Holy Spirit toward glory. So the Holy Spirit is, is given to us to help us um, move along, cooperate with God, and make it all the way to the end. So Thomas comments on this verse that the Holy Spirit prompts the children of God to do the Father's will by their own free choice. Have you ever felt um, like God giving you a kind of a nudge? You know, like a little poke, like, why don't you go to confession? Or why don't you, like, do something nice for that person, you know, who looks a little bit down? And it's like a little push. I mean, I remember when I first came back to the church, I was talking to somebody about my, my conversion story earlier. Um, I felt like the Holy Spirit just wouldn't leave me alone. I mean, it was like a four-year-old, like, tugging on my sleeve all the time, like, hey, 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 why don't you pray? Why don't you go to church? You know, it's just like always pushing, pushing, pushing. And uh, I, I think that's a very real, uh, you know, God allows us to sort of experience that in our feelings. But God's always um, offering the help of the Holy Spirit, offering us this sort of nudge um, to cooperate with his grace. Um, so uh, what God gives us uh, to help us cooperate are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, those help us, in addition to the theological virtues, to cooperate freely with the Spirit's inspiration. So if, if you've been confirmed, um, you probably had to learn all the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, did you have to memorize those? You were being confirmed, right? Maybe you, maybe you remember them, right? The gift of wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Um, so I'll just mention a little bit about the gift of wisdom. So remember, the gift of wisdom um, is one of the things that we get in the mission of the sun into our intellect, right? It makes us more like the sun. It especially makes us a daughter or a son of God because the gift of wisdom helps you out of love for God to make good judgments about things in accord with God's will to judge in order in accord with the divine rules. That's what Thomas says about it. Helps us to think like with the mind of God um, and to order our life in a way that helps us follow God's plan for our life, that helps us get to the end of that journey. So all the gifts help you respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting in different ways, but they help us to do it out of our own freedom. So again, that's important. God's grace doesn't move us around like puppets. God never forces us to do things by grace. He attracts us by grace. He gives us the, the dignity as rational creatures to make truly free choices. But what grace does is it inclines us and helps us to make the right ones, the right good choices. So in a person deified by grace, all these infused dispositions of grace and the virtues and the gifts they actually increase our freedom to do the right thing. Um, increase our freedom to do what's going to make us really happy, right? Instead of those bad choices that we sometimes make. So a deified life is a life of freedom, and it's even a life of joy in spite of the inevitable difficulties we're all going to face in this world, right? Especially because um, we struggle with our own limitations and our own sin and those of others. Um, so to be deified by grace does not mean we're already perfect, but it does mean that God intends 
to make us perfect. And you know God never gives up. So deification is not a one-time thing. It's a dynamic process of growth in likeness to Christ and the Trinity that brings you closer and closer to the fullness of existence, really, to the fullness of knowledge, love, and joy that is going to be the life of glory in heaven, God willing. Still, it does allow us even now to have sort of a little taste of God's inner life of of love and communion. So I'm I'm going to finish up my talk um, now with some thoughts about how deification is related to prayer and ultimately to communion with God in heaven. So prayer and worship of God are really rooted in charity, in love of God, um, that gift that makes us like more like the Holy Spirit. And prayer is helped by the gift of wisdom that makes us like the Son. So wisdom's act, Thomas says, what, what it does in particular is contemplation. If you have the gift of wisdom, it helps you to contemplate. And by, so by contemplation, I don't just mean making any kind or thinking about God in any way, but contemplation means a sort of deeper, loving gaze into God, a gaze that delights in God's truth and goodness. So it's a loving sort of a knowledge. Um, Thomas says we're drawn to contemplative prayer because. I'm going to quote, by loving God, we are aflame to gaze on his beauty. We're longing to see God's beauty. And when we gaze on God's beauty in loving contemplation through charity and wisdom, our own souls become beautiful. We're shaped by what we see. Beautiful things attract us because somehow they reveal the goodness of their reality. When we see something that's beautiful, we see its truth, and we see how good that truth is, right? That kind of shines out to us. Um, and so beauty, you could say, is the goodness of truth shining forth. The, the goodness of truth shining forth. The splendor of, of truth. So God is beautiful because he is truth and goodness itself. So <coughs> Thomas says, and quoting Dionysius again, God is also beauty itself. So and God's beauty especially, you might say, is seen in Christ. He, he especially shows us God's beautiful truth. And in the letter to the Hebrews, um, that idea comes out a little where the author calls Christ the splendor of the Father. Christ is the splendor of the Father. And Thomas explains that this is because the Son of God, right, who is wisdom, who is the Word, The Son of God, the Word, shines forth to reveal the truth of the Father's goodness and glory. Sort of is the one that shines it out to us. So in the Son, we see all the beauty of God. So the more we're deified through prayer, and especially as we worship God in the sacraments, um, the more we share in Christ's sonship and in his wisdom, the more beautiful we get, right? Because we can share in his beauty as well, and and we can start to shine, hopefully, with God's truth and God's goodness and splendor. Um, In heaven, of course, the saints literally do shine with God's beauty, right, in in their body and their soul, um, because they're filled with God's goodness and and splendor. 
So I'm going to give you one last quote on the handout where Thomas describes the beauty of the saints. He says, beauty comes from the indwelling of God. A house is not beautiful unless it is inhabited. The psalmist says, I love the place where your glory dwells, and all good works, gifts of God and the saints are the beauty of the house of God insofar as he dwells in them by the divine grace, which beautifies them like a light. And the glory of the Lord went into the temple. So in heaven, Thomas says, the saints are deformed, fully conformed to the Trinity by the light of glory. In the face-to-face vision of God that scripture promises, the beatific vision, the intellects and wills of the saints reach their most perfect possible likeness to the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they know and love the Father in a direct union with the divine persons that kind of completely floods them with a share in God's own light. So as you may know, there's, the saints don't have faith and hope anymore. They don't need it, right? They've already got what they believed in, what they hoped for. But charity reaches its full force. Right? It's, it's perfect um, in heaven. Um, and what charity does in heaven is it rests in that perfect contemplation of God's beauty. Now, sometimes when people think about um, heaven as sort of heavenly rest, they wonder, is, doesn't that sound a little bit boring? Right? But rest here um, doesn't mean a kind of passive or frozen state, right? As if we're going to be sitting back and watching God like some giant TV set or something like that um, in eternal boredom. Um, the charity of the saints is at rest in God in the sense of never turning away from Him. It's fully active, it's anchored in God, but it's fully active. It's like, completely um, on fire um, for God. So the love of saints uh, for God is always full force. Um, it's, never, it's never boring. They're always heading deeper into the knowledge of God's goodness and, and truth and into personal union with him. So we can never fully comprehend God, of course. Um, he's infinitely fascinating. And so um, heaven's uh, certainly never going to be boring. So unlike some other um, spiritual writers, Thomas thinks that every Christian is called to contemplative prayer in this life in some way, because everyone in a state of grace has charity and um, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And as I'll talk about um, next time, every Christian has access to a life of grace and deification through the sacraments. So all the faithful have a vocation to true worship as part of this life that we're called to heading towards the beatific vision. So we're all called to share in Christ's own true worship of the Father and, and to reveal the divine beauty um, with him. So if we've been blessed with the gift of grace and we're being deified, our lives should reveal the goodness of the divine truth to others um, through our own truth and goodness. Like uh, the Father, Father said at church, you know, we should all be bringing in the fish <laughs> in, in the net, right? Um, so the deified life, it's a beautiful life. It's a life governed by charity of wisdom. It's rooted in prayer, contemplation, lived in union with God and others for God's sake. And it foreshadows heaven. And our life now should reveal God's glory and his beauty and be configured to the beautiful life of Christ, um, who is the incarnate word. Thank you.
So we have plenty of time for questions. Perhaps I'll just ask you uh, repeat the question for the sake of the recorder. And if you forget, it is one of the joys of my life to remind speakers to repeat the questions. So <laughs> don't worry. Okay. Yes. Hi, Professor. Aaron, Aaron right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I have a question about education and what happens when you receive the Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, thank you for that question. So the question is um, about deification and what happens when you receive Holy Communion. But actually, my next talk is going to be talking quite a bit about that, about, that, about the Eucharist. Um, uh, but for now, I, I can say that you know every time we receive communion, of course, we're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ himself, right? The source of grace. And so uh, really, of, of all the sacraments, um, communion especially gives us this uh, gift of grace that brings us into union with God. So it, Thomas calls it the sacrament of charity, um, and he draws that from Augustine, who, who calls that, uh, calls the Eucharist that as well, because it's the sacrament that most unites us with God, um, unites us in love with God, um, and uh, uh, sort of um, inspires us to to grow in love for God and to seek God more and more. Um, and, so, and so for that reason, it certainly is a, a sacrament that especially deifies us. I mean, all the sacraments do because all the sacraments confer grace, but each one does it in kind of a different way, you might say. Um, and this deifies especially by bringing us into, into unity um, with Christ. And uh, yeah, Thomas talks about how, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about this next time. But how the sacrament is kind of like, um, do you, perhaps you're familiar with the passage in the book of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. Do you remember this passage where an angel takes a burning coal from the altar and flies down to the prophet and touches the prophet's mouth with a, with a burning coal, right? And so um, the fathers of the church, and Thomas takes this up, compares the Eucharist to a burning coal that when it touches you, right, it's like the body of the Lord, which is on fire with divinity, touching you and communicating that fire of divinity to you as well. And so sort of deifying you with this holy fire. Um, and so, yeah, the Eucharist especially, you could say, is a, a sacrament of deification in that way. <coughs> so thanks for that question. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that humans participate the most out of all the creatures um, in, in the divine image and, and yeah. creation. And you, you Besides angels. They're actually more to the divine to image than we are. Yeah. The angels. Yeah. Because you touched on that briefly, but I'd love to know, um, because angels are in complete communion with God, right? That, well, the good angels are. It's, <laughs> yeah. Angels in heaven um, are in complete communion. Then... I would love to hear more about, like, are they in need of deification, or is that just humans because we are fallen in our human nature? Okay, well, um, that's a great, oh, repeat the question. Oh, uh, okay, say it what again. About, what about angels? Okay, the question is, what about angels? Are, do they need deification, or are they deified? Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, angels are actually more to the image of God even than we are, uh, just by nature, right? Because um, they are, uh, their intellect and their will um, is already 
more perfectly like the divine intellect and will sort of in the hierarchy of being. You'd say they, they share more fully um, in, in that likeness of God. Um, the angels who uh, chose God, right, who didn't fall, um, the angels um, have, uh, are also deified. You could say they're deformed, like the saint we will be, God willing, if we get to heaven. The saints in heaven are, are fully to the limit of their capacity to the image of God. And so the good angels also are, um, are, are completely um, in glory, really. So in heaven, uh, on earth, we have grace. I mean, it's a sort, of, sort of a technical distinction between grace and glory. On earth, we have grace that conforms us um, uh, you know, by a participation in the divine nature more to the Trinity. Um, in heaven, we have the light of glory, which is an even more intense um, gift, which conforms us even more fully um, to, to the Son and the Spirit and brings us into union with the Blessed Trinity. So the angels have the light of glory. Um, and so, um, yeah, they are completely on fire <laughs> with God. Um, and, uh, yeah, yes, you're welcome. Yes. This might be a dumb question. No, no, no dumb questions, right? But would you say that communion is experiencing God in his essence at all? Um, so, you mean the Eucharist? Yeah. Okay, so is do we experience God in his essence in the Eucharist? Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Uh, we can never fully experience God in his essence ever, right? Because God is beyond our comprehension, really. Um, and on earth, um, we really can only, um, uh, we, we can't experience God directly in his essence. The, the good news is that uh, in heaven, um, what happens when we have the light of glory is that we actually, Thomas thinks, that we actually are united directly to the divine essence. Now, we still can't fully comprehend God ever, right? Because we're finite, and God is infinite. Um, but in heaven, Thomas thinks, God sort of um, himself becomes, comes in and informs our mind with the divine essence, and we actually see through the divine essence. We can see, um, to the extent that God permits it um, in his gift of glory, we can see uh, what God knows. Um, about all things that God knows. You know, if we can actually understand um, perhaps the answer to every question we ever had um, <laughs> because we're, we're actually sort of seeing things through uh, God's own essence. Um, but that's not possible on earth. Um, so in, in communion, what we do receive, though, right, is, is Christ himself, right, body, blood, and soul, and divinity. So, so we are... We are receiving his divinity. Um, it's kind of a mystery, right? And we are receiving him in, in his whole uh, divine and human nature, in, in, the, in his risen um, flesh. Um, and so uh, in that sense, we are, we are united with him um, in his divinity, even though we can't fully know his essence. Does that help? Yeah. I'll be talking more about the sacraments next time. Um, so. We'll get a little bit more into all of that. Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, so you mentioned in your talk uh, about the divine mission, about the, the Son and the Holy Ghost being sent into our souls, right? Could you speak a little bit more about the relationship between that 
and the idea of us being grafted into the body of Christ and then being taken up into the life of the Trinity itself. Okay, that's a big question. Okay, say it again so I can kind of um, concisely so, put it on the table. What is the relationship between the two persons of the Trinity, the Son and the Holy Ghost, entering our souls? Um, the relationship between that and the uh, I guess idea of us ourselves being taken up into the body of Christ, into the Son, okay. and partaking in the Trinity. That. Okay, thanks. Okay, so what's the relationship between the idea of the Son and Spirit in the divine missions coming into our souls, and between that and the idea of us being part of the body of Christ, um, and, and then being conformed to the image of the Trinity? Right, okay. So, uh, but that's a great question. So when we, um, the way that we're made part of the body of Christ, okay, is through the grace of Christ being given to us. Um, that's what joins us to the body of Christ. So when, uh, when we're baptized, for instance, right, we receive the sanctifying grace in baptism that justifies us. Um, in, that, in that gift of grace, um, in which we receive those divine missions so that we become um, more conformed to the Son and Spirit in our intellect and will, in that very gift, that's what makes us part of the body of Christ. So um, we're, we, we become joined to Christ by that grace. And, you know, if you, if you uh, lose that grace, which you can, right, through mortal sin, um, for instance, um, rejecting God, um, then you, you're, you know, your soul kind of joined to Christ, but in a kind of dead way. So you could say you become sort of a dead a dead member of Christ. Um, and so you're not really part of his, his life anymore until you're restored um, by the gift of grace again um, through penance. So, um, so you know, by grace, we, we kind of lose, a, a, by grace, we receive those missions. Um, and uh, that's what gives us life um, in the body. Um, that's what makes us a member of him. So, so I mean, that's kind of related <laughs> to the idea that um, and, and I think this is an important one to stress nowadays, too, a little bit. All grace comes through Christ, right? There's no other route. There's no, you know, runaround to get grace some other way. And I think sometimes people are a bit confused about that, you know. So, well, that they don't really, they think, though, I don't really need to believe in Christ or I don't really need the church. Um, you know, I can just sort of sit on a mountaintop. And uh, Now, God does work outside of the sacraments, he can, he can give grace in, in, in other ways as well. But the ordinary way that God has himself sort of given to us to receive grace is through the sacraments, um, and, uh, uh, and, and that's what makes us Christ, because he's uh, members of Christ's body. You know, he's, he's the only mediator um, for us. So being a member of the body of Christ, um, because we have the gift of grace, that means we have those missions um, in our intellect and will, and that is what makes us uh, conform to the image of the Trinity. So does that fit those ideas together for you a little bit better? Yes. Yeah? Okay, yeah. I think Father Jonah has his hand up. I don't know if we're pressing on time. Oh, no, I just had a, <coughs> I just had a question. Oh. Um, really quick, uh, in regard to participating in the divine life, Yeah. What is 
the direct correlation for salvation. And in mind, I'm, 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 because I'm, I'm thinking about the, the Lutheran idea of by faith alone, by grace alone. Yeah. And so this partici participation in the, uh, the divine life, what does that have to do with um, uh, being saved? You know, you know. Okay, so what is participation in the divine life? What does it have to do with being saved? So you mean, what does like, the idea of deification have to do with the idea of salvation. Meaning, if if uh, you had uh, Thomas and uh, uh, Luther together, and Luther was saying, "Well, all you need is faith. You don't need okay. You don't need to participate in the divine life if it goes that far." Thomas saying, "No, you need to participate in the divine okay. life." Okay. So I'm saying, where's that? Okay. Well, I mean, you know, Thomas and Luther would actually agree on more than sometimes people <laughs> think. For instance, they both think that. You know, grace is what saves us, right? Thomas just thinks that with the help of grace, then we can cooperate with that, and we can also uh, do things that merit, um, that we can sort of get involved in our salvation in a way that Luther wouldn't agree with. But they'd certainly both agree that grace is necessary in the first place, and only uh, through grace can we be saved. Um, so... Uh, Talking about grace as a participation in the divine life, um, it's like we are talking about salvation. You know, Thomas would say that's what it means to be saved, is that God gives us this participation in the divine life. Um, and perhaps, you know, Luther wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, he'd say, he'd just maybe talk about it more in terms of sanctification. He'd say that. Um, you know, we're, we're saved by grace, but then we have to sort of live a life of sanctification um, and become more like Christ. I mean, he, he would say that as well. Um, he didn't, I don't think, uh, himself really use the language of deification, but there are, um, and I perhaps even Father Andrew would know more about this than me, but there are some actually modern Lutherans who are trying to retrieve a concept deification in Lutheranism. Yeah. So they're arguing that it, it, it's kind of embedded in Luther's thought, um, even if he's not using um, all the, the same language um, as some other you know, parts of the tradition do. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's antithetical to Luther's, uh, Luther's thought, put it that way. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's still salvation. I mean, deification is salvation. Um, it's just thinking about some of the effects of grace in, in a way that perhaps Luther didn't articulate. Does that help? Sort of. I, I, I guess I was just, I have this, this idea of like the couch Christian, of like, well, I can, I can have faith in God, but I don't have to necessarily enact anything in, in the world or participate. But then you have the Catholic idea of like, well, no, like you have, you have to act in the world. And, oh. and you can't just have faith, you have to act in the world. And participate in this. Oh, well, I see. So, so you're thinking about you're talking about participation in the sense of action, like sort of carrying out actions of 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 good deeds and and good works. But in communion with in with communion God in in, in my. In uh, my no. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I do think Luther would agree that you have to do good works. I mean, if you. Uh, you know, when you read some of his, his texts, I mean, he's clear about that. 
He just doesn't think that we earn, we can earn anything by it, right? He just doesn't think we can merit anything by it. Um, he does think it's necessary to do those things, um, sort of as a result of being saved. Um, I don't think that he would agree with any Christian who thought you could sit around on your couch and not do any, not do anything, and that you, would, you know, that that, that would be okay. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So Father Jonah, or yeah. Um, so, as you've kind of mentioned before already, it takes a certain level of, obviously the infusion of grace of baptism is what like allows us to participate in the divine life and do education and all that. But also, you said that God is also the first mover. He's the one who, like, encourages us to unite with him. So, for those who are not baptized yet, obviously there has to be a certain level of grace infused into them for them to have enough grace to be able to come to the church or to come to mm -hmm. the sacraments and so mm -hmm. on. <clears throat> so my question is, is so I don't want to get too much like into Calvinism or anything like that, but how, like, is there an argument to be made that God infuses at least some level of grace into everyone, even if they're not baptized, and then it is to, up to them and their free will to be attracted by that grace to then confirm further grace through the sacraments? Or is there to say that because God knows everything, that he may not infuse as much grace in those he knows who won't do anything with it versus those who will do something with it? I love your question. Um, okay, so what, okay, what, what's going on before people, I think if I can just make it a little more concise, how does God prepare people for baptism, does he act, does he act in people with grace before um, they come and receive the sacrament of baptism? So, so is that your question, basically? Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay, so I mean, if you're really interested in reading about this, you should go to the uh, the first part of the second part of the Summa, question one hundred nine. Okay, <laughs> um, but so Thomas it addresses this question, which is a very important one, right? Um, and, and one of the things he does is he makes a distinction between different types of grace, okay? So the grace that's infused into us that is called, we call sanctifying grace that, or habitual grace, the grace that, that transforms us and gives us the theological virtues and all of that, okay? That we receive through the sacrament of baptism. But Thomas distinguishes between that and another kind of grace that he calls helping grace, or auxiliary grace, sometimes it's called, right? And that grace is a kind of grace that it's not an infused habit, like sanctifying grace, um, but it's a grace that moves us. It's a grace of divine motion. And it's that nudge I was talking about, okay? So, so Thomas says that God does offer everybody this, these nudges of moving grace, right, to nudge them towards receiving uh, baptism, towards receiving um, the, the actual gift of habitual grace that will transform them and allow them to begin living that supernatural life, okay? So God's grace prepares us for grace. There's never, ever any step we take that begins the journey towards God. God always begins. He's always 
prevening us, right? So uh, Augustine called it prevenient grace because it comes before. Grace always comes before. Um, so, so even our own desire to go to baptism, right, is prompted by grace. And he was, Thomas was very uh, adamant on that in the Summa, in that question I'm, I'm telling you about. And, and it's, it's interesting, especially interesting, I think, um, that uh, he actually changed his mind on that. When he was younger, in his earliest works, he, he repeated um, a common formula that people, some other theologians used in the Middle Ages, that said, uh, to those uh, who uh, are doing their best, God will not deny the grace. So some people believed that, um, that we take that first little step and that God sees us doing well, and he rewards us with grace and then helps us. So we, but we take that first little move of desire. And Thomas, uh, because he read some works of Augustine, he came to realize that's not right. God has to always be the first one. We can never move towards the supernatural destiny for ourselves, not even a little bit. So God always makes that first move. And then he helps us respond to it. Um, and then being prepared, then we receive that gift of habitual grace. So, so God is, offers that to everybody, yes, in some way. Um, Thomas thinks. But we're free to refuse it. So that, that's the kicker, right? Yeah, we are free to refuse it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.